Another episode of No Challenges Remaining, our first, really, of the 2013 tennis season. I'm Ben Rothenberg, and joining me at the start of this new beginning for all of us is Courtney Nguyen. Hi, Courtney. Hello, Ben. How are you? Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you as well. How's the first week of the season treated you so far? It's been good. It's been fun. I mean, it's the beginning of the season is always like, you know, drinking from a fire hose. It's just, there's, we're so, I don't know about you, but I'm so starved for stories and for just to hear these tennis players speak and do their thing and play that, you know, that's why the Aussie swing, I think is always like exciting in that way. And that's coming from someone who, you know, this too, Ben, like during the off season was like, Oh, thank God the off season. I can't, you know, I could totally do without seeing tennis for a while. No, I'm back in the swing of things. Ready to roll. I like the fire hose analogy, but it's almost like in December, you're sort of holding your, the, your face up to the fire hose, like looking down to see if any water's coming out, and then all of a sudden, the fire hose hits you in the face and knocks you over. Exactly. Just so much. Exactly. And and you're happy because you're not thirsty anymore, but also it's a little bit of a shell shocking moment. It is. We, we start off with like six tournaments last week. I guess seven, seven if you yeah seven with Hopman. That's all. That's like more than almost any week in the season. Well, yeah, and and it was it was absolutely brutal. I mean, I I know that you were watching quite a bit of it as well, mm-hmm. Ben, and it was literally like tennis twenty four hours a day. Because yeah. it was on tennis on different continents, and you had you know tournament on one side of Australia in Perth, and then you had another one on the other side in Brisbane. That's a three-hour time difference. Then you have Auckland, which is another you know hour or two, I think, different. And then you have you know China, and oh, it was just it was rough. And the way and the way it worked because Doha, like most of the Middle East tournament, starts kind of later because of mm-hmm. the desert heat or whatever. There was only like literally an hour and a half in the day between when Doha ended and when Auckland begins. So there was tennis like 22 and a half hours a day, which is just not healthy. For it's us. not. It, it, it hurt. I mean, I'm still I'm still recovering. And I think I almost have like a bit of, you know, kind of PTSD where even I think yesterday and today I, I keep thinking that I'm supposed to be watching tennis. And, and yeah. then I'm like, oh, no, but the tennis hasn't started yet. And I, I actually keep like refreshing the live score window and double checking the order of play and double checking time zones and all that sort of stuff to make sure that I'm not missing something. So I'm already, tennis has already whipped me back into shape. Well, hopefully next week when it all, when the grand slam finally starts and it'll be all in one place, you'll get more into your rhythm, I guess. Well, yeah, I'd like to get into some sort of rhythm that allows me to sleep. That would be nice. That would be nice. I've been up for over 24 hours as we speak. Oh, wow. Yeah. You sound remarkably perky given that. Yeah, I'm all right. I'm all right. I think, again, it's the beginning of the season. So it's like, you know, you're coming off of a time of like having about a month and a half of actual regular sleep. And so my tank is relatively full. So it's not too bad. But I also know that I can't sustain this for the week because the Aussie, you know, you got to you got to be firing on all cylinders once Melbourne kicks up. So but you won't have to worry about that, Ben, because you'll actually be there. I will actually be there. Well, I mean, I'm not sure exactly what state I'm going to be in when I arrive because my flight, it was a lot cheaper for me this year to go the longer eastern route instead of going D.C., L.A., across the Pacific to Melbourne like mm-hmm. I did last year and then to Perth. Um, but across the Pacific is a little bit shorter and this time I'm doing D.C. to Dubai, so across like the Atlantic and then mm-hmm. I guess all of Europe or Africa or something and then 
across the Indian Ocean to Melbourne, and it takes about five hours longer in flights. What's five hours? What's five hours when you're already on a plane for over like you know twenty? That was that was my thought, and it was like five hours for like. I don't know, like $600 difference. I was like, I'm totally doing that. If you pay me $120 an hour to sit in a chair, I will take that deal. <laughs> that was That's how I justified it to myself. So yeah, so we'll see. But I told my editor, like, I told her I would be there Thursday, but to absolutely no guarantees that I'd be like a functioning human on Thursday. Yeah. So well, make sure we'll that when you're in out. Dubai, you, you hit up the Dubai duty free and you stock up because let us learn our lessons from... 2012 Australian Open, Ben. Yeah, it's true. The alcohol is not easy to get. It is very, that's very true. We'll see. Hopefully they'll let you take liquids on planes and stuff. They do if it's duty-free. Okay. Yeah, like they, because they, well, I mean. I obviously, the, I obviously defer to your expertise on this. I know, it's kind of frightening how well I know this. But yeah, like like you buy it and then, because you're already past the security gate, right? Okay, that makes sense. So once you're there and it's it's in, they put it in a duty-free bag that's sealed and you can't break the seal. So, yeah, you can carry it on. There you go. So I'll have to get a lock. It's three weeks down there. And that was the other thing I was going to discuss. It was going to be my rant, actually, this episode, but I'll bring it up now. Okay. Why is everything in Melbourne so expensive? That Why? Makes no sense. It's ridiculous. You were talking, you were telling me about how the Australian beer is cheaper yep. in California than in Australia. Yep. A six-pack of Cooper's Pale Ale, which is a tasty beer, a beverage that I enjoyed at the Harry Canary Bar mm-hmm. in uh, our, you know, our bar, Ben. Oh, yes. Love that giant. So cool. Run by, like, these two, like, butch, bear, gay <laughs> men who are adorable, and I loved them. And they made good drinks, but they had the Cooper's Pale Ale. That was, like, the only beer that they had. And I think I remember it being, like, seven bucks, seven or eight dollars for, like, a bottle of beer, which is a bit much for that bar but like a six pack i remember being like something like 16 17 18 19 dollars of their own locally brewed beer and i went down to beverages and more in my little suburb my little white suburb and like you can get a 12 pack of coopers for 12 bucks so it doesn't make sense doesn't. it doesn't make sense at all but that does mean that i'm going to stock up on i'm going two six packs of coopers and mm-hmm. two six packs of james bogue which is the beer that is served on site that you can buy that's quite good as well and so i will be there in spirit in drinking spirit i will be with you guys because i'm very very jealous that you get to go and cover what is one of the most fun slams to cover your your body is in the u.s but your but your liver will be firm my liver is firmly firmly in australia in melbourne so courtney what would be the biggest thing that you think you learned in this first week of the 2013 season Hmm. I think, I mean, I think my biggest takeaway from the first week was just that I have renewed faith in the two Brisbane runner-ups. Mm-hmm. So Grigor Dimitrov had a great week uh, to make his first ATP final where he lost to Andy Murray, but played played really well. He beat Raonic easily in the second round and just continued to play just really great tennis. And he wasn't really playing outside of himself. He just seemed to be I don't know, fitter, he was he was moving well, he served really well, and that, that really helped him. But so, you know, for a long time, I think we've been waiting for Dimitrov to, to kind of have a breakout season. And then at least off of one tournament, I'm kind of much more inclined to think that 2013 is going to be the season that, that Grigor finally, you know, breaks into the top, like, 25, mm-hmm. and which he's more than capable of doing. So that was pretty exciting. And then 25, 25 almost seems like a conservative estimate for him. Yes, it is. And that's just me being 
you know, like See, trying. That's fine. Yeah, one of my New Year's resolutions, my tennis New Year's resolutions that I wrote on Sports Illustrated was, or on Beyond the Baseline, was that I was going to be easier um, or more understanding when it came to the younger players. Okay. So a bit kind of taking a more kind of wait and see kind of approach. So not trying to have expectations. And then when they fall short being like, Oh, they're horrible. They're young. Like they have plenty of time. Yeah. So yeah. So he's one. And then the other would be Anastasia Pavlyuchenkova, who I think is someone who I wrote that I would sell in my buy sells, um, si.com. And I don't necessarily retract that because I think obviously one tournament is just really hard to be like, Oh, she's going to totally turn around. Because she can be a very erratic player, but um, you know she she beat two back to uh, two top ten players back to back in Kvitova and Kerber, so and she played really well. So got demolished by Serena in the end, but most people do. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. My basic takeaway from this first week is sort of you know as the Who and Julianne Moore and whoever else say the kids are all right. You know this is a big week for Dimitrov and Pavlyuchenkova, and also Sloane Stevens. Yeah, it's also a big redemption week for Bernard Tomic and. Hotman Cup because there was a lot of he probably had more pressure on him than anybody this week. Agreed. With just him returning to his home continent and expectations were really low. I'll give him that, but he came out and beat Djokovic in straight sets in and played well and played really well. Played the way that you want to see him play. Yeah, and better than he probably ever seen him play before. Agreed. The aggression upside, the power upside, was more than I'd ever seen from him. For sure. He always had the sort of maddening variety, but now there was also this sort of less scenic route to win points that was encouraging for sure for him so those would be my basic takeaways a couple other some weird stuff happened in Chennai that I don't entirely understand like Bautista Agut Roberto Bautista Agut making the final there I've never seen him play once yep. nope. um I've seen Beden- Al- Bedene. Alias Bedene I've seen him play he's pretty good yeah and then in Auckland Jamie Hampton had a really good week making the making the semis there and she really could have beaten Radvanska and just did not play the big points all that well yeah. in that match. So encouraging from her. She's up to a high career high of like number 64. Or so, and obviously, and the biggest one, I don't know if I mentioned already in this sentence in passing is Sloan Stevens for me. Yeah. What Sloan did against Serena in that quarterfinal, I thought was really, really encouraging. Just Serena was playing well and Sloan stood there and hung with her toe to toe really for all but the two games she got broken. Yep. And it was just great exchange of power, and her movement has been impressive. And she followed it up by beating Laura Robson in the first round of Hobart, which was a pretty pretty convincing win. I mean, that match did not seem as close as I thought it might have been at a lot of points. So, yeah, those are that's my takeaways, that the, the youth are coming on strong. Yeah, which is exciting. I mean, I think that that's what you want to see. I mean, even though in the end of the day it was the tried-and-true names – that ended all up, top 10 titleists right all that, six exactly yeah. that 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 lifted the trophy and it was p- players that you pretty much kind of expected would be there in the end i mean davidenko obviously was quite a shock uh, in doha knocking out ferrer but crushing ferrer yeah and then uh bautista agu beat burdick in um chennai so those are the top seeds that that, that went out but otherwise it was pretty straightforward but uh, what you want to see i think uh we've talked about this before is just to New names, new players that have impact, and especially when those players are, you know, lower ranked or even unseated, that makes it really exciting. I think uh, I'm excited for the draw to come out on Friday or Thursday Definitely. night. You know, like I want to see where, you know, certain players end up. Like so, yeah. So it should, it should be really, really exciting. So I'm looking, I'm definitely looking forward to the Australian Open more now than I was a week ago. I agree. I think there was a lot of interesting new character introductions here that could pan out nicely yeah 
we'll see. Sounds good. The other big story from the first week, injuries, or people more and more getting to be, I guess, cautious about you know, how they approach these warm-up swings. And it seemed like more so than ever with the number of pull-outs that happened this week. I believe we got a question about this, actually. question is part of a question from Steve Kinslow, who asks us, who asks us on our Facebook page, I should say, as you all should, at or you can all like us on Facebook. We really need to feel your affection. Facebook.com slash NCR podcast. And his question is, the injuries and retirements and withdrawals this Aussie summer is ludicrous. Apparently, no one wants to be the Brisbane or Sydney or Hobart champion. They all just want a couple practice matches before the AO. Fair enough, I guess, but shouldn't these professionals at least stay on court for their matches? What fan is going to continue to purchase tickets if year after year you know the players are not committed to finishing the week? Perhaps if players were only rewarded with ranking points the previous round, if they fail to complete the current round, it might be an incentive. Looking forward to Sydney all the same, he says. So, Courtney, what do you think about this sort of sudden rash of pullouts that happened this week? Right. So, I mean, the, you know, there were a lot of high-profile withdrawals. There was, you know, Sharapova withdrew from Brisbane before it began. Azarenka withdrew from, from Brisbane uh, in advance of her semifinal match against Serena Williams. Not often heard an explanation, which sounded, like, you know, legitimate, but still kind of, I think, could if you just heard it, it might leave... Uh, weird taste in people's mouth. You right. got it from a pedicure. Like a pedicure gone wrong. Yeah, Sangha uh, pulled up lame. And I mean, it was it was a lot of just, uh, yeah, uh, withdrawals. Isner. Oh, Isner. You know, I mean, I think that it's hard because one thing that struck me last week was a bit of odd frustration that the ATP doesn't have a, an event of the stature that Brisbane is for the ladies. In other words, when Brisbane began, it was eight of the top 10 women were playing there, you know, whereas the men were all kind of spread out. Like they, you know, so you didn't really get like big matchups anywhere um, right. among the ATP. Now, that being said, like that was my initial re- reaction. At the same time, I was kind of like, well, actually, that's probably a good thing the way the ATP has done it because they spread it out. Players can kind of like go get their matches. They spread their talent around, you know, so the the play, you know, there's more, um, you know, the smaller tournaments are more attractive to fans, things like that. So I'd be kind of went back and forth 50-50 as to which was the better way, because at the bottom line is that I think this is the first year Brisbane was a premier, was granted premier status. I think it has been for a couple years. Okay, maybe a couple uh, definitely, years. Definitely was last year when Serena and Sharapova both showed up. Right, exactly. Or wanted to, I guess. Sharapova withdrew that year, too. Right. Um, but yeah, no, it is, and that does draw all the people, whereas the ATP, I guess Djokovic got to play Hopman. There were, I don't know if there were any top 10 women at Hopman this year. I don't think there were. Yeah, I don't think there were. So, I mean, that tournament's been hurt by the WTA doing that, and the WTA, furthermore, punishing players who play Hopman over WTA event. There's a fine that I know that got given to right. uh, Lena and Wozniacki last year for playing Hopman. Right, which which, which, Brisbane, which Perth pay, pays. Right. Yeah, so they're, they're happy to pick up that, that check. But, yeah, no, it still seems counterintuitive to what you'd want for an officially sanctioned ITF event anyway. Right. Yeah, but then at the same time, like, the fact that all of, like, you know, you have the eight of the top ten playing Brisbane, that's where the withdrawals hurt you. Right. Right? Because, like, okay, you've now kind of 
effectively forced all these players to play it and they don't want to play it and necessarily and or they're just obviously very cautious i don't know i mean i i'm maybe not as cynical about some of these withdrawals as maybe other people are maybe i'm naive that's totally fine but i really i'm on this case on a case-by-case basis i wasn't really too surprised by any of them no and it comes to and it comes to the territory when you buy a ticket to a warm-up event. Right. I mean, people. I've heard people bemoan this in Cincinnati several times when it's two weeks before the U.S. Open, and they're upset because like a couple years ago, Serena withdrew after the second round, and they were like, "Oh, I you know wanted to see her, blah blah." blah. It's like, yeah, but you know, you have to if you pay any attention to tennis. This, these are the rhythms of injuries and how they work. Anna Kardashian was getting married that week. Anna Kardashian was getting married that week. That's completely true, and that marriage lasted like almost. Almost two and a half months. Yes. So it just it's risky taking you buy tickets to any tournament, but especially these. And the crowds in Brisbane were great, as they were in Perth. Mm-hmm. Um, Auckland seemed like pretty good crowds too. Uh, so I think fans are okay with it, are willing to you know, sort of juggle that. And especially more and more now in the wake of slams, there's more and more money, more and more prestige allocated to the slams uh, disproportionate to smaller tournaments more than I think there probably ever has been. I think that keeps going up and up. And so especially coming a day after what happened to my team's quarterback, uh, Robert Griffin, the third staying in with injury too much and just sort of destroying himself and his chances, you know, I can't fault people for wanting to play it safe before a massive tournament. Now, I mean, I think that the counter to that I would argue is that if you become a player that has this reputation, of consistently withdrawing, of showing up to like satisfy your commitments, but like then pulling out. I think that when you start to establish that reputation, it does hurt your market value. Totally. It, it and I you. think, and we're, and we're talking, you're referring to Azarenka there, I imagine. I think, yeah, I mean, I think that Azarenka has that reputation. I think that Sanga is starting to build that reputation as well okay. of being a person who shows up and then either just kind of tanks effectively a match or, you know, shows up injured and just really can't compete in the way that he should and, and really ruins his, his, his year because he's just not, he's not ever fit or as fit as he should be. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think that, that Azarenka is probably the lightning rod to that because I, while I don't think that she, you know, some people thought that like she was dodging Serena in this situation and she withdrew. I really wasn't that cynical about it. I think that she was injured and I think that she genuinely did want to play that match and she couldn't. So that's fine. But in the aggregate, it doesn't help her. No, I mean, that's what I wrote, I wrote about this, too. And I thought that this particular case, you know, there's no reason to really roll your eyes at it too much or whatever. But it's a sort of girl who cried pedicure situation <laughs> with her. It's just this was her something like her 18th injury withdrawal or by my count. And that's also probably it could be low because it's hard to get pre-tournament withdrawal statistics a lot of times. Mm-hmm. Google a long time for as a rank of withdrawals in quotes. It's just been a lot for her. And Sharapova famously blasted her for this in Rome for managing to have all these injuries that last like a week. I mean, she's not someone who you'd ever consider chronically injured. She's never missed big tournaments because of injury. And, you know, and I think that, and again, I mean, if Maria needs more fuel to her fire, you know, Azarenko is on court on labor today. Yeah. You know, uh, and I think even, even sooner than that, I think, too. Yeah, probably. So, you know, I mean, I think, and that's not to say, I mean, so was Sharapova. Sharapova withdrew from the tournament and she was like in Melbourne two days later, like practicing on court. Now, her argument's a little bit different than for withdrawing from Brisbane, from Brisbane is a little bit different from Azarenka's insofar as, like, Sharapova was like, yeah, I picked up this injury, I, doctors told me to rest, and I just was not ready to compete. Yeah. You know, it's kind of the Rafa 
argument. And hers was sort of in the shoulder area too. Right. Exactly. Which she's, she's, you know, paranoid about anyway. So it's a little bit different, but at the same time, somebody could easily say the same thing about her is that she withdrew from Brisbane. And yet while that tournament's going on, she's like practicing on court, uh, you know, in Melbourne, the optics are not good. No. You know, so in terms of being able to like help the tour and doing what you need to do to support the tour, like you do need to satisfy your commitments. But at the same time, like, yes, like you shouldn't be killing yourself. You shouldn't be RG3ing and playing when you shouldn't be playing. So if you're hurt, you shouldn't play. But to the extent that you have you've built this reputation of effectively being extremely fragile, that's not helpful to you, to, to you and your market value. No, it's not. So we'll see. Just based on pure speculation, are there any of these injuries we've mentioned before that you think will actually have? A real impact on how a player goes into the Australian Open. I think Isner's the one that jumps that most. To Isner's, me, Isner's is the most worrisome because. Um, and he's playing Sydney this week, which yeah. I don't understand at all. Exactly. So Isner, you know, retired with a knee injury, and he says that he can't. He's having problems like loading up on his serve and getting up on that knee, which is problematic because that's kind of his weapon. That's his game. That's his game. And I do think that there's some, like, until I see the draw, I will be concerned for Sharapova. Okay. Simply because I think that there are enough dangerous floaters that if she were just to draw certain ones, cough, Lissicky, cough, in the first round, with zero match play, it could be tough. Because I think that last year, she had a draw that allowed, she went in cold last year as well, but she had a draw that allowed her to play herself into form over the course of the first three rounds. Right. So and there's a few and there's a few tough floaters in the 25-32 section of the seeds too. Yep. Come third round, like she could get Venus. Mm-hmm. She could get uh, Sloan. She can get Sloan. Those are not those are not easy outs whatsoever. Right. So we'll we'll wait and see. Our first question of today's show comes from Second Serve, a Second Underscore Serve. If you want to look them up, and Second Serve's question is Sam Stoser in Australia. What gives? Courtney, what does give? You know, if we could figure it out, if Sam could figure it out, I think that it's it's a it's an unanswerable question mm-hmm. in my opinion. Uh you know, I mean it's 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 seemingly completely mental. You know, it never helps when you get into a slide like that and then it just becomes the story, right? And you get asked about it all the time, not unlike, you know, Andy Murray and when are you ever going to win a slam, you know, before uh, last fall? Are you going to win Wimbledon? Like, here's the hype to win Wimbledon, you know, that sort of stuff. So I th- actually thought that Andy Murray is like, um, they asked him about it, uh, about like, what advice would you give Sam? Which I find always to be kind of like a funny question. And, you know, I get so used to hearing players be like, kind of dodge the question. Yeah. Right? Like, they'll be like, well, you know, I don't know what, you know, I'm not worried about them or I don't really know what their situation is. But Andy actually gave quite a thoughtful answer and was just really, you know, you just got to ignore everything and you have to kind of be almost vigilant about not reading anything written about you during that time, you know, surrounding yourself with just, you know, a very small team of people and and just really not indulging in any of it. And I think that, but then when I remember, I remember reading that and just thinking, well, but Andy's different than Sam. Andy's, uh, I think, much more inclined to be willing to do whatever it takes to get put himself in a position to succeed. I think Sam is a little bit more of a people pleaser. I think she's a little bit more laid back to where she probably just doesn't think that it's that that any of those things are really affecting her, but they actually are sort of thing, you know? That's very possible. And some of and it's interesting that have him talking about her specifically because they both come from countries with large sections of the media that's pretty tabloidish when it comes to sports coverage. Right. I remember seeing a paper when I first got to Melbourne last year. Sam had just lost in Sydney, shockingly, 
and <laughs> they had a photo on the front page of this paper. It was like her sitting like on the sidewalk, like stretching afterwards, like sitting down and like a bus park nearby. And the headline was hit by a bus. Sam loses <laughs> yeah. her just Like, really? This is completely ridiculously sensational, like to a degree that I never even could even think of coming up with something like that. Right. Yeah. So it's just it's pretty nuts. But I do think that in some ways losing both matches in other places could relax her in some ways for Melbourne because the bar is so low. She has, yeah. she has done so much yeah. to abs. If rankings were only based on tournaments played in Australia, I'm not mm-hmm. even sure she'd get into qualies. Like that's yeah, probably she's, right. I mean, she just doesn't win there. She's like, she has fewer wins in Australia than like Boyana Babusic and stuff. Yeah. So I feel like hopefully it would relax her, but it's just, just seems it like a ball though. of nerves. No, it, it won't work that way. I, I understand that it worked. I'm just saying in an ideal world, maybe it would just, happen that way yeah i mean i think i think that in an ideal world maybe like if she was like in a vacuum like she'd be like yeah okay you know not don't really know what to expect and um you know expectations are pretty low etc etc but i think the problem is is that that's just now the narrative right on stozer is that she can't win in australia and and that those are the stories that get written because those are the stories that now become popular because that's what everybody thinks and that's what everybody wants to read and and she's uh, it. i mean she's the only australian seated at this tournament men or woman man or woman mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. she is a grand slam champion i mean it's not unreasonable for people to have expectations of her on a hard court where she won a grand slam on that same similar surface but yeah it's just not working that way for her yeah, I mean, and she has expectations of herself. You know, I mean, it's I don't think that, you know, she's someone who could be kind of delusional and just be like, well, I'm just not going to win here. I think that she really does is trying to figure it out. But it's just really tough to watch. I mean, it's it's almost kind of you know that old internet slang nid. Exactly. Never in doubt. Never in doubt. Like you know, like uh, Zhang Zhe uh, takes the first set last night. Stows her fights back to take the second set in a tie break, and then. Just completely gets, I think, goes up like three one and doesn't lose, doesn't win another game. Yeah. In the third set and loses, and you can just see it on her face and just like everything slipping away, and it's pretty brutal. And I feel like for this particular tournament, they have more significance to her than like your average person's warm up tournaments do, because she's from Queensland, so Brisbane is a big tournament for her. Like our home, really her home tournament. And then mm-hmm. Sydney is the biggest city in her country. So, mm-hmm. I mean, those are both, it's not like Serena not doing well in Cincinnati right. before this. It's much bigger scale for her and coming the very week before. I don't know. I mean, I think that if she makes the quarterfinals in Australia of the Australian Open, I wouldn't be shocked. I mean, she's totally capable of it. If she, if she wins, it's all about really the first round for her. I feel like well. unless she gets a really tough draw or a draw that doesn't work for her. She gets through the first round. I think she should be safe through the first week. See, I think that it's entirely draw based. I think it's 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 really matchups, and uh, she's a matchup player. No, she is. You know, I think we've talked about that before. Just about you know, she's like you know nine and zero against some players, and she's zero and nine against others, and and it's just and it, and it's not even close. Like the players that beat her regularly beat her badly. Now, how grateful do you think she is, at least, that neither of these losses to Zhang Zhe and Sidney, and who was it in, in Brisbane? It was um, Arvidsson? Yeah. How grateful is she that neither of them are Ovas? <laughs> Cue the Ova song. Exactly. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, 
she's uh, it's just it's just coming it's it's like a satire of itself it's ridiculous yeah Yeah. exactly but at least this time when she goes into Melbourne one thing that I think will actually take some of the focus off of her is Tom yeah no he's the the main story yeah, he'll be the talk of the town, regardless of what happens in Sydney this week. Either it'll be like, oh, there goes Tomic again, or it'll be like, oh, yeah, Tomic backed it up and got to the quarterfinals or something in Sydney or, you know, something like that. So it could, uh, that'll help her. It helps to have another person on that stage. That's something that, you know, people have always said is, has been really tough for, for Murray is that, you know, he's just, he's the guy, Definitely. you know, and there's not even any, like, I mean, now more so, I guess, with like Robson and Watson, but, they don't they don't move papers the way that that Murray does, and I think that what helps Stozer is that Tomic does move papers probably more so than she does. Yeah, I mean Tomic is doing crazy, you know, media friendly things like driving around, you know, fancy cars and wrestling on rooftops and whatnot. And Sam is just sort of Sam. She's just Sam. She's just doing her thing, yeah. and unfortunately, that thing is losing matches in Australia. Wah wah. Wah wah. So. Hopefully she breaks out of it. You never know, but I just don't see it. No. Well, we'll, we'll find out. Her draw will definitely be interesting. She could get, I mean, yeah. she can get, like, a serious cake draw. That She can get an unlosable draw first round. She, I mean, there's no way you put she her. She can. You can put her up against, I don't know, pick somebody from the very bottom of the rankings, and she could absolutely, and Kirstea last year was a t- was zoning. It was a tough out. Right. So odds of that will happen again, probably low. She draws Putin Sieva. Oh. <laughs> poor sam can you imagine sam in this like fragile state having to deal with putin seva on labor oh it'd be oh, oh my gosh be... to be courtside this is where i'm gonna be really jealous of you that you're there and i'm not that you can sit courtside uh, if that match ever happens i don't know i might need a full audio for poots oh man we'll see so here's a different question for you it's not one of the reader questions but i was wondering if you can make any ideal first round australian open match anything you pick what would it be Ideal first round AO match. Yeah. So no two seeds, obviously. Right, right. Mm. I'll give you mine. Okay. Watson Robson. <laughs> just let's let's just do it. Let's let's stop dancing around the issue and throw the girls in the ring and see what happens. They played each other. Not not anywhere near a big they played each other in like Barnstable or something. Barnstable. Doesn't count. Doesn't count. Even if they did send a TV crew to film it. Was so hilarious yeah i can't believe that how much coverage that match got that would be pretty funny that would be very very funny first round dream match let's throw kuznetsova and serena oh that's tough because like... on any given day sveta could pull it together totally and she can beat serena she knows this so that'd be pretty funny or how about kuznetsova sharapova Oh, Rusty Sharapova versus like a streaking Kuznetsova, assuming she keeps it up in Sydney. Could do, could do. That could be, that could be something. That could be. Ova fanboy asks us, "What was Nadia thinking, ditching Ricardo Sanchez?" I've heard this. This is one of the more sort of surprising offseason moves. I thought mm-hmm. was that Nadia Petrova, who had a big surge at the end of last year, is now no longer working with Ricardo Sanchez, who was her coach during that whole period. What do you make of a player changing coaches? Is it something you can read about it instantly, or you need more details on the situation? Well, I mean, I think generally speaking, you need details. But I think that, you know, I, I, I don't necessarily read a lot into those sorts of changes. But I do, in Nadia's case, simply because of her reputation of really not being able to stick with a coach. Mm-hmm. 
she just really she she changes coaches with the seasons you know and commitment issues yeah and and it's it was i mean it is it tremendously surprising that she wasn't able to i don't know see what the good works they had done together in the last like you know quarter of the season and and um it's peculiar if for all we know it could have been a money issue or something could have been. they could have not been able to find a salary for him that they agreed on but, uh, but what know. else is ricky doing I don't know. He says in his interview that I saw about this, he is apparently waiting by the phone for Elena Yankovic to call, is what he was yeah. clearly sending out there. So, he waiting, waiting by the that. phone with his stopwatch, seeing how long it takes for the call. Chrissy KM asks us, who is the biggest threat to Serena at the Australian Open? Uh, she adds, I have a hunch that Lena will surprise again this year. Courtney, who do you think can take down Serena? And if it is Serena versus the field... Who do you take? Well, first of all, I do want to say, just spoiler alert, that Lena is my dark horse pick. Okay. For the Aussie. I'd kind of love to see her play Sloan again. Mm, that'd be interesting. I think that Sloan's one of those players. It's like, it's like a, you know, it's like a mini version of Serena. Power and speed. Yeah. Which is a mix that you just don't see a lot. That's, um, that's a rare, that's a blue moon kind of thing on the women's tour. I mean, you get yeah. so many players who really can get away with one or the other. Like Sharapova does not have the speed and has made it work. Radlanska hasn't quite gotten all the way there, but she doesn't have the power. Azarenka well, has a little of both, but not Yeah, I mean, not even if you look at just, both. if you just look at the young, that young crew, every one of them, right? Like Laura Robson is the one that can hit the ball, but she can't move, right? That's the book on her. Uh, Heather Watson can move, but she can't hit. Right. You know, uh, and Sloan is right there as being somebody who could do it all. She just has to kind of get out of her own way. And kind of learn the discipline. And you feel like um, it's a generational thing. Like you used to have so many players who had both. Like you had Serena, you had Capriati had both in huge quantities. You had uh, Dementiva had both off the mm-hmm. ground. They were not her serve. Um, even like Justine Ennen had plenty of power for her mm-hmm. size. I mean, she really, especially late in her career, was almost something of a ball basher. Yeah, you have to just wonder what has happened to make people not be this way anymore if the athletes are going to other sports or something it could be also an issue of technology okay that you know in terms of like what the type of game style that is rewarded sometimes is just like bash the ball mm-hmm. right and so then you don't either learn the fundamentals from when you're young or you become very reliant on being able to hit winners and you don't really work on your footwork and your movement and things like that it, it is i mean it's it's hard to say i mean there's so many different factors i mean when you start talking about the dearth of tennis players in the next generation from the States and from the UK and from Australia, typically tennis powerhouses, you do have to look at the the question of like, well, are, are the, especially when it comes to women's tennis, are the athletes going to other sports? Yeah. Absolutely. And, and particularly in the States too, because we, I don't know how it works in Australia, but I know that the UK doesn't really have like a high school and college right. athletic system. Yeah, I think we talked about this before. There's just so many more opportunities for young female athletes in diverse areas in the U.S. than right. pretty much anywhere else. Unless you're somewhere weird, not that's the right adjective for, but like China, where they really specialize and pick people from really young ages to try right. to train them intensively on something. The right. U.S. is a really, pretty unique system. It doesn't always work towards specialization so much as well-rounded young women. Right, exactly. Back to the Serena question, though. The thing is, if she gets Azarenka... It's going to be really late in the tournament. It'll be a semis or yeah. final. And I feel like Serena, if she gets there, will be at full speed and not really beatable at that point. Yeah. 
No, it has to be an early round thing. First through fourth round thing. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe quarters, but not really. Yeah, I, Sloan, Sloan definitely there. Sloan could be a first round for her. It could be... It's got to be somebody who believes. Pavlyuchenkova would have maybe made my list if, she, if the Brisbane final hadn't happened. Yeah, she didn't um, just roll over. Yeah, she completely did. Or she, I mean, she got blown off the court. Yeah. I mean, look, I don't, I don't know. I mean, it's it's tough. If you, I had to pick Serena over the field, that's where I was going with that. I picked Serena. I think the odds of her winning this tournament are better than 50%. Yep. So. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I think... We had that, really. I guess maybe U.S. Open a yeah. little bit, but there were so many, you know, question marks with, oh, can New York, can she hold up under the pressure and the situation of that? Australia is her sort of, always been her happy place. Yeah. Yeah, ex- exactly right. And, you know, Lee not could do it. I mean, I don't disagree with that pick at all. No, that's a good pick, um, actually, for that. You know, I think that that's a good pick. I, unfortunately, Kavita was just not in that spot. No, Kavita had a start to the year. Yeah, yeah. And she doesn't, I mean, Petra doesn't look fit. No. I thought that, I thought that my hope for her would be, was that, you know, they'd go into the off season and they just go into this intense training block. And not to say that they didn't, I don't know, but that it would, like, you could tell, like she stepped on back on court and she, you know, looked like ready to go. And she still looks sluggish and a little slow. And Pavlyuchenkova conversely looks like way yeah. better, the best I've ever seen her in by far. For sure. And I feel like for her getting in that shape and then immediately being rewarded with it, with a big tournament result will make it mm-hmm. last. Yeah. So, yeah. Cause you, you need to have that, uh, you know, you need the carrot. Yeah, you do. And, you need to show and that like Petra, that work is paying off. Yeah, and Petra has had big results without being in ideal shape. Same way, same thing with Serena. So it might not have always been in the back of their minds. They know that they can win without it. Mm-hmm. So it's it's interesting. But yeah, I pick I pick Serena over the field. Yep, as I wrote on uh, uh, Beyond the Baseline, I think yesterday or today, it was like if you're if you're not, if Serena isn't like your favorite going into the Open by miles, then you're just being contrarian just to be contrarian. Agreed. I have yet to hear like a valid like argument for for somebody else. No, agreed. TJC05 asks, "We want your picks to win the AO, of course, but what about the flip side? Who is on upset alert in week one? Let's actually do both parts of that. If we both pick Serena to win for the women, mm-hmm. who do we pick for the men?" Courtney I've got Djokovic as do I yeah once again I feel like you can someone else this is not a versus the field situation I don't know but there's no reason to really think that anybody else has a better shot than him right right that's what it comes down to we haven't seen Roger at all I wasn't particularly impressed with Murray in Brisbane not at all um uh he got the job done which was great but it wasn't impressive in any way Djokovic on the other hand aside from his loss to Tomic looked fantastic uh, tip top in both um, Abu Dhabi and Hotman. Mm-hmm. We haven't seen Roger, so we don't know. And then the rest of the field, I mean, we haven't seen Delpo, so that he's an X factor as well. But you know, yeah, Burdick lost to Bautista Agut or whatever. Joe's hobbled, and outside of them, who do you really pick over Djokovic? You know, there so, are there are players who Djokovic can play who he can lose to. And I think there's really, yeah. I mean, there's like four of them, I think, honestly, it's like Federer, he can lose in the final, I guess mm-hmm. that could happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, Murray, for sure. Mm-hmm. I think Burditch, if he's on a good day, he can totally beat him. Mm-hmm. And maybe Sanga yep. or something, maybe. But then Sanga's had health issues. So I might even take him off that list. 
there's just so few people. Whereas Federer and Murray, there's a lot more people who can beat them. I feel like. Yeah. And yeah, I'll just he's he's the king of the castle right now. And Australia has been like Serena, but even more so. He's won three of his five slams in Australia. That's his yeah. place. So, no reason to think that won't continue. Agreed. Yeah. So then early flameouts then. Okay, early flameouts. I mentioned that a little before. First round flameouts against like somebody random, I guess. Well, Sharapova is the one that comes to mind immediately for me mm-hmm. because she hasn't played. Um, but it depends on exactly how juicy this upset has to be. But if someone, like, I don't know, Sarah Ronnie went out first round, it wouldn't shock me. Right. So, yeah, it has to be like a ooh kind of pick. Okay. So my ooh pick will be be Sharapova for the, for the women. Mm-hmm. And for the men would be... The song is not ooey enough. Um, let's let's go with Murray. Murray just was not impressive at all in Brisbane. How close he came to losing to John Millman. Yeah. Number 199, not, John Millman. That's inside the top 200. Um, he did not... That did not inspire confidence. And, mm-hmm. yeah, I just... I think he has... Of the top four, he's the one who's been most susceptible to first-week first upsets in his career. So I'll go with him. Okay. And in terms, that's going really super ooey. I mean, if somebody like Tip Sarvich is his first round, like that's not gonna make me, you know, really scratch my chin. And go, huh? Yeah. So how about you? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, you took Sharapova, so I'm gonna give you Sharapova. Okay. Uh, but she would have been my pick otherwise. And I know this contradicts what I just said before, but I would say Lena. <laughs> okay. I mean, I think that she's a dark horse. I think that she can do it. But is she also... ooey? Is it ooey if Lena loses? She just won Shenzhen. Okay. She always plays. She's played well in uh, Australia the last like she should have beaten Kim last year. She really should have. So she's played well there. So that means that she, you know, she and then she was a finalist. She plays well down there. She's really confident under under Carlos. You know, she had a few little mental lapses in Shenzhen that make me worry, though. I mean, she's still her. Yeah, she needed three sets against Zakapalova. Yeah. And she almost choked that away. 5-2 lead up in the third and she it got back to 5-5. Five, five. Yeah. So... Yeah, so I would say maybe her, but because otherwise, who else is an ooh? Like you know, if not the if not the top three, I mean, I don't think Red Redwanska's not going out early. Kerber's she, not. Someone someone could completely zone against Redwanska, possible. Yeah, like and Jamie, she can Jamie come out Hampton flat. Did come close. Yeah, and but, she can come out flat. And she, but she had a decent. She had a really bad post Wimbledon summer, sort of, through the U.S. Open, which is she was really unimpressive. Mm-hmm. But she, I feel like she got her act together in the fall. She played well in Istanbul. She played well in Tokyo. Mm-hmm. She, I feel like she's back on track, yeah. So if she gets a really, if she gets a dangerous, dangerous floater, she can totally go out first round to Sloan or something. Right. But I think it's going to take something like that to beat her early. Yeah. I mean, what does it say right these days, you know, that, that it's weird. I'm still getting used to this concept that the WTA is this stable. I know. It's sort of, I think we're in like a really happy place with the amount of parity right now. In the yeah. But there are the dangerous floaters. There are the people to watch in the job. There's also a sense that you're going to get to the end of a tournament and it will be worth watching. Or it'll be people who will get butts in the seats, right. you know. So it's a nice thing. I don't want to think about it too hard, not jinx it, but it's nice right now. Right. And as I say that, we're getting ready for a uh, Toro Floor Gattisova final. Tito. <laughs> Next question from Renaissance asks, rank the new One Direction album. Just kidding. He says, which I'm not, I'm going to bite on that anyway. Threw that out there. My favorite track by far on the new One Direction album, which is not that new at this point, 
is I Would. It's sort of mid-up-tempo, and the lyrics are ridiculous. I've decided that my favorite One Direction member is actually Louie, because he cannot sing. And they didn't give many solos in the first album, so I heard him on the second album, and I was like, who is this person who can't sing? And then I saw something that was him, and he really can't. And the lyrics are awesome. There's one line that's like, um, I feel like I keep playing a game that I'm destined to lose because I can't compete with your boyfriend. He's got 27 tattoos. I mean, <laughs> that is excellent. I can't believe that you listen to this cheesy crap. Oh, or that I can recite me. it from memory. Exactly. Well, you know. My word. I'm just getting prepped for a certain player's pressures next year. I gotta be ready. I guess so. I guess so. Yeah. So that's my pick for the new One Direction album. I don't know if that's going to be a single. It probably won't be. Uh, but then, then he, Renaissance goes on to ask uh, about some of the interesting recent WTA doubles combos, most notably Sonia Mirza and Liesl Huber playing together in Sydney, which I think we both saw yesterday and were like, spit take. What? Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> what? So they that was one of the big stories or one of the fun little things that happened. Not fun, but juicy things that happened at the Australian Open last year was this incident where... Mirza and Huber got in a fight during a doubles quarterfinal, I think. Can you recap what that was? Yes, uh, there was a double bounce on a match point. A perceived double bounce, anyway. Yes, a perceived double bounce. Huber ended up getting back over the net. It was on a match point to Vesnina and Mirza, and the ref didn't call it, or the umpire didn't call it. Carlos Ramos. Carlos Ramos. And Huber and Liesl didn't own up to it, to the extent that she was, like, uh, Vesnina and Mirza were extremely unhappy about it. To the point where Vezina threw a bit of a tantrum, a high-pitched mm-hmm. tantrum, and then Mirza fired a patented Sonia Mirza bazooka forehand right at Liesl's and knocked her down. Yeah. Aimed at her and head. I think aimed she at her might head. have gotten a racket on it and just went crashing to the ground. And That's points later. The bit, and so Mirza and Vezina ended up winning the match. This was all in a third set tiebreak, by the way. It was pretty high stakes. Uh, they ended up winning the match, and they just continued to go on and on about it. And uh, Vesnina like took to Twitter and was tweeting with Lisa Raymond, being like, "You're a class act, unlike your partner." Like it was, it was hilarious. But yeah, so next thing we like, so last week, Liesl played with Maria Jose Martinez Sanchez, who we had heard was her 2013 partner. Right. I thought that was just her partner, but then because Maria Jose Martinez Sanchez is in qualies for the Australian Open. In singles, mm-hmm. she's unavailable to play doubles this week, so uh, Liesl has teamed up with Sonia Mirza to play doubles in Sydney. Sonia, who just won with Bethany Maddox-Sands last week in Brisbane. Brisbane, and I guess Bethany yeah. is also probably in singles qualities for the Australian Exactly, Open. so yeah. So it's all very confusing. So, I mean, that happens, the way doubles times work, the way they work is there's oftentimes just like a clipboard and the player lines people who are looking for partners write their names down. And it can be pretty big players sometimes, actually, who have mm-hmm. to use who use the system. So I'm guessing that like they were both waiting around for someone else to show up, and it was the two of them left, and they were like... Or I don't think... I doubt that Liesl has much problem with uh, Sonia, necessarily. But Sonia, I know, was more than steamed about that incident mm-hmm. for a while. So it's just it's just surprising. To the point where like they were, those two teams were playing each other again in Indian Wells, and we were excited about seeing what would happen. Exactly. Nothing, nothing happened, but... Nothing you know. did. But yes. Oh, well. So, and then Lisa is Lisa and Liesl, Lisa Raymond and Liesl Huber broke up over the offseason. And Lisa is now with Maria Kirilenko, which seems just apparently doesn't make sense to me on a sort of normal level. I don't understand how those two found each other. 
Yeah, I don't really know. I mean, for both Liesl and Lisa splitting up, I'm just kind of not sure how that's going to work for yeah. both of them going forward because there are no other real true committed doubles players. Yeah. That, you Except know, so for like they're... the Silent H's who are an item. Right. And so they're going to be kind of at the whim of all these singles players who are very good at doubles. Yeah. So are they going to just rotate like or just kind of flip around uh, partners all the time? Or are they going to like just kind of, you know, to accept that Lisa's teamed up with Kirilenko? Is she just going to go to all of Kirilenko's singles tournaments and then yeah. play doubles with her there? But then Kirilenko's probably not going to play enough singles. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, and I totally understand. So where understand. she's, 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 like, Lisa's playing all the time. Yeah. So then maybe she does want to, I know that Renee Stubbs played with, near near the end of her career, not the very end, but near the end of her career, played with Sam Stoser when Sam was trying to make a real push in singles, which worked out well for her, mm-hmm. except for in Australia. She was saying, like, I'm okay with playing this part-time schedule. I'm getting older. This is what I want. So maybe yeah. there's some level of that for Lisa, too. And I feel like Pate, Leander Pace has said this also with playing with Stepanek now, who's an older singles player, but still a singles player, mm-hmm. saying, I don't need to play as many tournaments as I used to to be in tip-top shape for the majors, which is what matters at this point. Mm-hmm. So yeah, maybe there's right. an element of that. Yeah. But still, it just seems like one of those pairings where I don't know what they talk about during changeovers. Yeah. I don't know what they have in common. I guess her engagement to Ovechkin. True. Which segue leads us to <laughs> another question from T. Claire L., who asks, why all the carry-on about who is dating who recently, and why should anyone care if Vika Azarenka is dating Red Foo, etc.? First of all, I don't think there's any reason to necessarily think those two are dating. I don't think be, they're dating. I'd be surprised. Yeah. But there has been a lot of relationshipy news earlier in the season here, with uh, Kirilenko getting engaged to Alex Ovechkin after a while, Maria Sharapova and Grigor Dimitrov being confirmed as an item I'm assuming Sharapova's agent, who's in contact with Darren Ravel a lot. And then uh, the other one is Serena and her coach, I guess, Patrick Mortoglu. Correct. Which I don't... Did you see Serena's response to that question? Did you watch the video of it? That was very well played by her. Yes. Yes. What do you think? Should we pay attention to who's dating who? Or is it something we should swear off? My general kind of rule of thumb is that I kind of don't care necessarily like even like with the, you know, Serena and, and and Patrick stuff, it's like regardless of what's going on there, like what's important is the on court stuff, right? Like so, is she playing well, you know? And to the, and unless it becomes like a, you know, is the relation, you know, a kind of Rory Caroline thing where well, is the their distraction that's affecting their game, you know, that sort of thing. I kind of personally, I try to leave it alone. Okay. Because like I hear things and I hear rumors and I hear things that are more than rumors and, you know, I. But a lot of it's just kind of us weekly tabloid gossip. It has nothing to do with tennis. No, and that's that's something we should point out is that we hear a lot more <laughs> than what is what's public knowledge. Right. A lot. Or and even just like certain things that people have dismissed that we know shouldn't be dismissed, and things that people you know blow out of proportion that are like nothing. Mm-hmm. You know, but to the extent that it doesn't really affect, it has nothing to do with their tennis. I try to generally ignore it. Now, like, you know, for example, like today, like I ran a story that was like Darren Ravel confirms that, you know, Maria Sharapova and Grigor Dimitrov are dating. Is that somewhat relevant? Yes, only because like they're both tennis players. Yeah. Like there's there's a different thing. But 
like the Kirilenko Ovechkin stuff or even Azarenka date when she was dating Bubka. I don't know. It just felt like, uh, I don't know. I don't love like getting into it or talking about it or. And it's one of those reading the tea leaves things like, okay, let's say Dimitrov starts dating Sharapova and suddenly makes his first final. It's like playing the best ten of his career. Right. Is this a complete coincidence? Maybe. Who knows? Right. But you know, speculation is not the worst thing in the world. And no, we're not like we're not picking through these people's trash to figure out what's happening here. That's those are right. all. Yeah. That's basically what I'm trying to get at. Well, I think that I I feel like we talked about this maybe before in passing, like um on previous podcasts, where just for me, like rule of thumb, like I do try to give players their personal space. Sure. So, and that they are kind of entitled to have a private life. That and, and I am a tennis writer. I write about tennis. I don't write about their personal lives, mm-hmm. uh, generally speaking, unless those per- their personal lives affect tennis. But I don't really think it's all that relevant just for like salaciousness or you know anything like that. Like, like for example, if the Serena Patrick partnership suddenly ends. That would presumably affect her tennis somewhat, because he is her coach at this point also. Right. So that one actually has probably the most on-court impact visibly mm-hmm. of any of them. But other than that, if she was da- when she was dating other people who she's been linked with over the over time, I don't think it ever really... Unless it's something like back way back in like 2002, when she says that she broke up with LeVar Arrington, mm-hmm. a player, and that it like really inspired her to like work harder, and it's what drove her to the Serena Slam. Mm-hmm. Okay, if you say so, Serena... Yeah, generally the day-to-day romantic doings of people not relevant to anything. Yeah, and I think, and and again, like I think that like it's and it's all just kind of how that everybody approaches the writing about tennis in different ways and has their own rules. I mean, for some people, they're they're like, no, like to be a good reporter, you do suss that stuff out, and it is newsworthy, and you report it. And I totally understand that. I don't like begrudge anybody that either. But like for me, uh, if it's public. If it's in the public domain, like, I will, okay, yeah, I'll comment on it. But in terms of stuff that just isn't public, I'm like, eh. Right, and it can be, it's a difference between us knowing things and us reporting things also. Yes. Like, I feel like being a reporter and doing a profile on someone, it can be, you know, somewhat, it's good for you to know in the holistic picture of understanding this person and what makes them tick. But is it worth, you know, sharing with the world? Always, no. Very rarely, if ever. So now it's time for our take a number segment, where we take a number between 1 and 100 and find the ATP and WTA player who correspond to that number in the rankings, and we talk about them for a little while, and not who they're dating, though, unless it's totally relevant, as previously (laughs) discussed. You ready, Courtney? I am. Far away. random.org, we type a number, and we get 81, which is actually, which is, again, staggeringly high, but lower than most of what we've gotten recently. We had a couple in the 90s in a row. So 81. It was not as bad as it could have been. Okay. So, Courtney, who do we have on the WTA for number 81? We have Japan's finest. Oh. Ayumi Morita. Okay. This is, okay, I have some stuff. I can talk, about, I can talk, about, talk about, Ayumi. about Ayumi. Yep. And on the men's side, we have one of the remaining three namers on the tour, uh, Guillermo Garcia Lopez. Nice. So let's start with Ayumi. Okay. Now, I think our main observation on Ayumi is the same. The two of us, we talked about this before offline, <laughs> <Yeah>. I think. <laughs> it is unbelievable how many coaches Ayumi Morita has and how hard, it seems, Adidas is trying to make Ayumi Morita happen. They are trying really hard. 
So, so Ayumi Morita is sponsored by Adidas. And if you go to any tennis tur- tournament that she's playing at, it's like you see like this whole cadre of like the Adidas player development program, like courtside yeah. with her. Like you'll see like three Adidas people there, uh, which is pretty crazy for, you know, a player who career high singles rank 40. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But and no the, big wins that you could, anyone can. Remember. Yeah, no big wins, and you know, not really a player that has any weapons. That that's really, you know, she's she's somewhat fast, but not the speediest, and you know, just kind of there. It's all. It's Perfectly. clearly all about that. Adidas wants into the Japanese Japan. market. Yeah, they want Japan. Ayumi's so, only made the third round of a slam once. Yeah. So. So they they they, they push her quite hard. So uh, just in terms of like, you can see the kind of personal time invested in trying to, to, to make her a thing. Yeah. And it, it has to be a lot of pressure for her. I mean, I don't know what kind of player she would have been without that much support, but I don't think it can be said necessarily that it's been a huge help to her. Right. With, because of her results. I mean, yeah. So she's a decent, I mean, decent player, but again, someone who, if you get her in the first round of a tournament, you're never going to say, Oh, that's a tough draw. Right. Right. She's kind of one of the ones that you kind of want. Yeah, pretty much. You know, because she's not going to overpower you. And, you know, she... Sharapova would love to have Ayumi in the first round of the Oscars. exactly. So so that's Ayumi Morita. I mean, she's very nice. Um, I've talked to her a couple of times. She's a decent tweeter, mostly in Japanese. But when she does tweet in English, she often talks about how much she enjoys Avril Lavigne, Mm -hmm. which I can get down with. (laughs) And, uh, yeah, she's a a nice girl. Seems, you know, to be carrying herself. Still relatively young. She's only 22. Right. Um, so there is, you know, time for her to maybe get into solidly top 50 or something, but I'm not sure the upside is really there. I would say that she should be solidly top 50. Okay. Having seen her play, you know, she, she has enough kind of craft about her game um, in terms of like uh, d- constructing rallies um, and things like that in the right way. But um, at the end of the day, like she's just uh, going to be a player that can be overpowered. And as the tour these days is made up of, of more and more so uh, of power players. That's that's a problem. Yeah, agreed. For her. So that's Ayumi in a nutshell. Ayumi in a nutshell. That sounds like something you'd find in a Japanese vending machine or something. <laughs> I'm sure there is one <laughs> in the Harajuku district or in Shibuya. Yeah. Guillermo Garcia Lopez. GGL. Is, GGL is perhaps, I mean, I see on the rankings now that Jimeno Traver and Batista Agut are also ranked ahead of him right now. Mm-hmm. But I feel like he is sort of the supreme hyphenate in the game in the I last agree. while. Um, on the men's side, anyway. I think overall, Medina Garigas is ahead of him, for sure. Mm-hmm. Women's side. He had a big, big win in Indian Wells this year. Or last, last year, year, 2012, yeah. beating Andy Murray in the first round. which was the biggest stunner of that tournament. And he's had a high, career high of 23, and has won... I think he beat Nadal in Bangkok a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. He's got some results in a pretty big game. He does. He does. And, uh, yeah, he's a big, tall guy. Hits big. You know, I actually, he's one of those kind of random journeymen that I will, like, watch um, on the ATP side. He's fun uh, to watch. Yeah, he's he's a good-looking dude. So, helps me. Mm-hmm. Totally unbiased and professional opinion. Totally professional. Totally professional. Yeah, no, but he's he's got a big game, I think, um, when he beat... Rafa, that was the big kind of take, sit up and take notice result of his. 
And, and then when he beat Murray, obviously that kind of backed it up. But he's one of those players where he can be dangerous. I mean, he can be dangerous as it's, he's already shown that he's beaten, you know, two of the top four that on any given day, if he's zoning, you know, it's tough. Totally agreed. But he also has not done a great job in his career of backing up big wins. I mean, we talk, he, I remember he beat Murray in New Orleans and the next round went out fairly tamely to Ryan Harrison. Yes. So, I mean, it's one of those guys who's fun to keep an eye on. He's not somebody you necessarily want in the first couple of rounds of a tournament, but he's also never should be a pick to really make a deep run in anything either. Right. There's an expiration date on his uh, on his zoning, yes. so to speak. So that was a relatively straightforward number, I think. 81. I think so. Yeah. Did us well. Thank you, number people. <laughs> the number gods were kind. I know. They finally were kind. They've Thanks. been rough to us before. They are a fickle god. The they gods. are. And I will say that, like, before... Last week, I had never heard of Bautista Agut, and I looked him up because I was a positive that he was, like, ranked outside the top 100, mm-hmm. and I saw that he was ranked within the top 100, and the first thing I thought was, like, oh, my gosh, thank God we've never pulled him for taking a number. <laughs> yeah. Thank God for that. Now it's time for our little rant corner to finish the show. Courtney, I've taken the honors of going first the last several times, so I insist, ladies first, please tell us what you would like to get off of your chest here okay I, I need to talk about tennis tv okay tennis tv is obviously like the for those who don't know and you should know what it is you, you should know tennis because if you know who is, we are you should know who it is yes and you should also like legitimately to me kind of sub- subscribe even though what i'm about to say is going to be the total like anti like anti-commercial for it okay um but it, it's basically the service that does like online streaming for the WTA and the ATP selected tournaments. But it's when it works well, it's great. It's $129 for the year. Not cheap. Yeah, it's not cheap. But at the same time, like, you know, support the tour, support the sport, like, you know, pay the pay the money to watch it online or, you know, otherwise watch your stuff on Tennis Channel, whatever it is. There are some quirks about it. Uh, you know, not all tournaments are, are broadcast. There's a lot of, like, rights issues. Sometimes, you know, certain tournaments that are going on, like people in England who have tennis TV can watch it, but those of us in the States can't watch it. So it becomes frustrating in that way and stuff. But when the service actually works, it's it's really great. I mean, it's Quality very, is really nice. Quality is fantastic and stuff. But it doesn't always work. And I've had so many problems last week trying to watch Brisbane in particular, I think Brisbane and Auckland. And it was just, just brutal. It, it just was choppy. It went, And so it got to the point where I just, in my head, I was like, look, I paid your, my money. I'm supporting the sport. I'm, you know, doing it the right way, but I'm going to go ahead and have to track down an illegal stream and watch it off of that stream because that stream is more stable. Yeah. And that is not a really good business model. No, not really. I don't think, because what happens is then you have people like me bad-mouthing your service uh, publicly, but it's just, it's rough, you know? Like, if you're going to charge that much money for it, it's got to work, and it just doesn't all the time, and it's very, very frustrating, and, you know, I can obviously sign up for it knowing that I'm not going to get every tournament, and I'm not going to get every match that I want to see, and I'm going to have to put up with, like, commentators who, in my, can really, really grate on me. I know all this when I sign up. But the one thing I do expect is that it works for what it is. And it wasn't working last week. And I basically spent 80% of the time finally just like shutting it down and opening up a Egyptian stream of Auckland. Yeah. Oh, well. No, it can be, it can, that can be tough. And I feel like the streaming sites that I've been forced to use anyway recently have been pop-uppier than usual this year. Mm. 
like they come up with those ads over the screen. The yeah. Like thirty seconds from to expire. They're like layered, like there's three of them at once over the screen. It's just like really. And they're totally deceptive because like where it has an X that you think is going to close the window, it's actually like a graphic that if you click it, it opens up a pop up. I feel like back in the early days of deceptive internet advertising, you could almost always trust the X's. You almost did, yeah. Yeah, but not anymore. But you remember there was that one time, like right, like right when the pop-ups like were had been existing for a while, and you kind of found a way around it, and you got used to just clicking and closing and stuff. When the pop-ups started to mimic Windows, yeah, pop-ups. But then at least usually there was like an inner X and an outer X, and the outer X almost always worked. Yes. Now the trick is that you hover your mouse, and if it doesn't, if you don't at the bottom, if it doesn't say JavaScript void and it shows a link, then there you go. This is advice you can use, people. You're welcome. My little topic here, it's much briefer. It's just a much smaller scale. I guess a lot of media people are going on their way to Australia now already. So Tennis Channel was using a different stable of commentators than it ever has before for Brisbane. (laughs) (laughs) I love that you're talking about this, but continue. And the person who they found to do the Brisbane uh, women's semifinals and final wound up just being one semi because Azarenka pulled out was Ashley Harkle Road. The Ashley Harkle The one and only Ashley Harkle Road. Ashley Harkle Road, sorry. And I I have to say, (laughs) watching the Serena blowout of Pavlyuchenkova, which was really, honestly, it was like impressive ball tracking, but it was a completely foreground conclusion, kind of boring match was made infinitely more entertaining by Ashley Harkle Road, who I don't know if she has any previous TV experience, but she was just sort of, you know, you got the sense that she was sort of sitting around talking, trying to fill the air with the most, just like sort of benign observations about things. I don't know, there was something very, very low stress about it all. It was relaxing listening to her because she was not trying to like make it seem like this was a life or death situation. She's someone who had a pretty decent tennis career and she really was doing really well actually, when she got forced out by uh, something like some sort of like uterine cyst or something that made her want to, you know, stop tennis and try to start a family immediately. I'm not exactly sure what the situation was. I thought it was an ovarian cyst, but I could be Ovarian cyst, but in her reproductive system, something. And uh, she had had some pretty good results before that. I remember she had beaten Dinara at Indian Wells, Indian Wells 08, the first time I went to that tournament. I saw Harkaro beat Safina. Safina was top 10 or so about to get making her big push. It's a big win back then. And yeah, and she just sort of always had this sort of relaxedness about her that, you know, I don't know, something about it. I'm hope what I'm basically saying is I'm hoping they give her more work on tennis channel because I just found her brand of analysis just I don't know, f- fun or just f- fluffy in the best possible way. There are certain commentators who I think are better at close matches and some who are some and some who are better at not close matches. For example, if there's a blowout going on on ESPN, please make sure that Pam Shriver is courtside. Yes. Because she is so great at going just completely off topic and telling stories about stuff and keeping it entertaining. I'm not saying she's bad at close matches. I don't think she is. I think she's perfectly good at all situations. But she's especially good when there's nothing really happening on court. She makes and, it. She makes something happen. And Ashley also has that gift. So does she? I really think she does. I really encourage you, if your DVR happened to pick up, like one of these Brisbane semis or final, if you really weren't planning on watching Pavlyuchenko versus Lesia Serenko, you know, you might want to just for the audio. That's, that's what I'm putting out there. I, I have to say that I was G-chatting with Ben while he was watching, and I wasn't watching because I was watching my non-tennis TV. Mm-hmm. 
and his recounting of Ashley Harkle Rhodes' gems were fantastic. I can pull them up. And, I was and sort of... said and said with love. They were. I mean, I've not told like you not... weren't mocking. You were just like, this is incredible. She said, Serenko like won a point with, with defense, and Ashley said, I'm impressed with her game. It's not easy being a grinder. Should have left it there. There was not a whole lot. I mean, the pacing of it. I mean, obviously, it was her first time on TV, like, possibly ever doing this. So, really, I'm cutting her slack. But it was just, like, the pace of it was just so... I don't know. It just made me... It was like going to, like, a spa treatment match. I don't know. There's something just, like, very freeing and relaxing about it. Before I get on this, you know, 30-hour flight, if she did, like, books on tape or something, I would be so down with that. She was the cucumber in your spa water? She absolutely, absolutely was. Nice. And then she, later on, she started, like, telling the players what she thought they should do on the next point which no one does during really as much as she was. So she'd say things like, okay, Anastasia, here, serve it wide, hit a forehand up the line, maybe a nice volley or something. And Pavlyuchenkova obviously could not hear her. And did nothing, <laughs> nothing like that. And then she was like, afterwards, she'd be like, uh, I guess that worked too. Just, I don't know. There's something very much just wonderfully, refreshingly innocent about it all. So Phenomenal. that's what I'm saying. If you get, if you get a stream or another tennis channel opportunity to have Ashley Harkle Road on. Take a shot. Hopefully they have her back. I really hope they do. There you go. So that is my thought to end with for this episode. Episode 24, I believe, of our show. We're going to be doing an Australian Open Facebook giveaway soon for some Australian Open swag. And actually, I'm going to say the question here. Do it a little bit differently. So nice. if you listen to the end of the episode... Here is your question based on one of our prizes, which is the Australian Open 2012 Record and Stats Guide. And the question is, which two women have recorded multiple double bagel victories at the Australian Open? So you can try to find that however you want, but there are two women who have both gotten double bagels more than once on the winning side. They've given double bagels. They've given double bagels. Who are they? And if you win... If you know the correct answer and are the first person to say it, you will win a copy of the Record and Stats Guide from Australia 2012 and the Media Guide, which is sort of a little behind-the-scenes type thing, which might some people might enjoy. So those are your questions. We'll put photos of them on Facebook when this launches. Good luck, and we'll see you next time. Bye, guys. Bye-bye. Definitely will be some One Direction to play us out. Of course. Feels like I'm constantly playing. A game that I'm destined to lose